0: This This was never never bear. Today we're talking about the Netflix series Making a Murderer, which follows the trial of Stephen Avery, who was convicted in 1985 of raping and assaulting a woman. But this conviction was later overturned based on DNA evidence. There were some questions raised about the trial and if the police and prosecution had done their job in following all the leads that they were given. Stephen eventually sued the Mantowoc County Sheriff's Department over their handling of the case, and then just over two years later, he was again arrested for the murder of Teresa Halbach. Uh, Stephen accepted a settlement in his lawsuit against the Sheriff's Department to cover the costs of his new trial. Stephen was convicted of the murder of Teresa, though once again many questions were raised about the involvement of the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department. In addition, Stephen's Nephew, Brendan Dassey, was also convicted for his supposed involvement in the murder. So, Nick, what do you think about this series?
1: Well, um, I'm very angry and frustrated. Those are uh, the, the feelings I'm sitting with. I think um, I would not have expected to enjoy um, something like this because of the anger and frustration I could, you know, feel from just the the outline of the scenario um, someone's wrong, wrongfully imprisoned, and then you know they're they're in the crap with the the sheriff's office and the government and um, something that was demonstrated throughout the series is that once you're in that position um, it's very difficult to get out of it. very difficult to change any kind of perception and um, the the legal system tends to Perpetuate the needs of the legal system.
0: How about you, Jason?
2: Um, I found this case to be um, also disturbing, and obviously, I feel pretty angry about how some things went. And I guess overall, my feeling was uh, a couple things. One, I I think the main conversation that making a, a murderer should really focus on is how we consider due process and whether or not our system is actually designed around protecting folks and treating them as innocent until proven guilty. I think it's very easy in a system that requires so many stages and so many steps to actually go to a trial and receive a conviction, including a unanimous jury. It's very easy to uh, feel as though we have put in ample protection for folks who are accused of crimes uh, and to really put the burden of proof on the state and on society to show that they are guilty. But I think that this case really uh, is, should be an eye-opener to folks in the number of ways in which that deck is already stacked against you from the moment that you are brought in uh, as a suspect, which I think is pretty unfortunate. Uh, The other thing I kept on thinking about as I watched the series um, was really a comparison to serial, sort of the other phenomena of true crime storytelling over the last um, few years. And I think there are a couple of interesting differences in the way that this story was presented that I think are worth kind of considering as well. First – Because this was slightly more modern in terms of the time period, I mean just a few years um, more modern than serial in terms of when the events of the trial happened, there were substantial video, audio material and substantial evidence which was made available to the documentarians that I think really changed the tone of the story. Because the structure of the Netflix show was really to basically walk through things in pretty much chronological order. Whenever they backtracked, it was because there were things happening in parallel. But even then, they sort of – it was more like a when you read a novel with multiple characters where they'll switch viewpoints and sort of drop back to where we were um, when we last started following one hero and sort of follow the next uh, protagonist of the story. Hero, I think in this case is a very loaded word. But you know, main focus of the story and follow them chronologically until we've met back together. So – because they had a lot of the recorded evidence from the trial itself, it was very easy for the narrators to sort of keep their voices out of it and use people who were involved in the story to provide context around what we were watching from the actual events that occurred. And And that was something that really was lacking in Serial. And I think as a result of that, I was much more cautious of the storytelling elements in Serial and much more cautious about believing the evidence as presented because I felt as though – I understood that I was in the middle of a narrative and that the journalist's job was to provide a narrative for me in a way that I didn't feel as much during making of a murder or making a murderer. I didn't feel that narrative pressure and I realized that it was not because that didn't exist um, by the end, um, but it was much easier to forget about because we don't hear their voices and because they had – Um, More materials where the evidence itself or at least uh, the evidence as given throughout the events of the trial and the investigation could sort of speak more for itself. And and I wonder if that is impacting the way that people process and understand this story. Although I will say that in the serial case, I don't think that folks have been as conscious of the fact that this thing was constructed as a narrative with a goal in mind with – the drama of revealing things as an important element of how the series is presented and how the information is presented and that that has an impact on your views. And so I think this story comes across as being far more neutral because of the use of actual evidence and the use of chronology. But I'm not sure that it's any less of a narrative, and I think that's something that's really important to keep in mind.
0: Well, that's interesting because... If I think back to when I was listening to Serial as, as opposed to watching Making a Murderer, I felt like during Serial there was a lot more back and forth for me between, yeah, he did it, yeah, he didn't do it, whereas with Making a Murderer, I felt like 99% of the time um, I, my mind was already made up of, of whether or not he was guilty. Did you find that in Serial?
2: Yeah, I think in Serial, I, um, I think that I felt that I did not believe that he was guilty early on, but I was very guarded in that view because I wanted to um, appreciate the fact that I thought that that was narratively more interesting if it was presented that way and that I knew that Sarah Koenig knew more than they were presenting as part of the story sort of as we were going along. Whereas in this case, I don't think I flip-flopped as much, but I also didn't question my own flip-flopping as much because I felt like what I was doing was following the events almost as they happened. And so it didn't feel I, – I didn't feel as guarded about the possibility that I was being manipulated by withhold, withheld information. Whereas in Serial, one of the reasons why I kept on flip-flopping was an awareness that I was not being told the information in sequence. Instead, I was being told the information in a narrative sequence, which is different. And and like I said, I'm not necessarily convinced that Making a Murderer doesn't pull the same trick. It just does a much better job of hiding it. And I think it's allowed that by the inclusion of actual trial evidence and actual testimony.
1: Yeah, I, I didn't listen to Serial, but just listening to you talk about the narrative aspect, I really did feel a strong narrative in Making a Murderer. And that narrative was that, um, you know, Steve Avery was, if not innocent, presumed innocent and had been given a raw deal by the Manitowoc sheriffs and um, Calumet County and by the system as a whole.
2: I, yeah, I mean, that. I think that it was pretty clear from the beginning.
1: I mean, it's clear from the
2: name, right? The notion that they are making a murderer. Right. Um I I guess that some folks felt like that could potentially have double meaning. I never bought the double meaning because I think that the the point of view was pretty clear from the beginning. And even just the access, that they had mostly access to the Averys and their sort of supporters as opposed to access to the victim's families or or members of the police department. It was pretty clear. They didn't want you to waffle. I think they wanted you to consistently feel that it was clear that the system was was out to get this guy, which I don't – Deny Like when I say that I'm angry about it, it's because I largely buy the narrative as given. But I think the unique thing about this versus some of the other true crime stuff that I've listened to is because the story has somewhat completed by the end of the documentary and because the documentary is over such a long period of time that I think doing anything but chronological order would be too difficult to follow – They couldn't use some of the typical ways that you can manipulate a viewer or listener or reader um, by withholding information and playing with chronology in order to introduce um, shocking details after the fact. And it's almost as though they pulled that all out.
1: Well, I don't think there was a whole lot of that in the case to begin with. You know, it, it was we got our guy just as it was, you know, 18 years prior. We got our guy and that's the end of the story. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of of surprise evidence or this and that. You know, it's, it's just it's how the whole thing transpired, you know, bit by bit.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, I mean, that, that's actually a pretty good transition for us to sort of go through the events. Right. So let's start with the 18 year priors, which is what roughly the first two episodes where they cover the original case where Stephen Avery is convicted of um, brutally. Uh, assaulting and raping a woman in Manitowoc County.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not just anyone, right? I mean, she's a community leader. She's mm-hmm. the wife of someone who's um, very popular, very entrenched in um, not only the community itself, but sort of that, you know, uh, good, wholesome values. Um, and for this to happen to her was, you know, unspeakable and, and terrible. In more than just the action itself, you know, it was a it was something that shouldn't have happened to someone like her.
2: Right. And I think that's a good point, because that's an undercurrent to this whole story. It's not only that everyone always knew that they got their guy when they picked up Stephen Avery. It's this sort of juxtaposition of outsiders and of people who are members of the, you know, who are poor, right, as opposed to uh, Mm -hmm. upstanding middle to upper middle class integrated folks. It it is really a story of outsiders in so many ways and how the insiders treat them when things go wrong.
1: Well, you notice uh, uh, more than once um, someone in an official capacity refers to um, the Avery compound. Right, right. Yeah, like they interesting hold word. up there.
2: Yeah. Yeah, separated hold up um even
1: you know devious in a sense, right? Yeah, and these are you know these are not like eloquent people. You know, they're not stupid but they're not, you know, to use a word like compound, they do it with uh, a a sense of purpose behind mm-hmm.
3: it. mm mm-hmm. Mhm.
2: So Mike, tell us a little bit about this initial trial and and what are the thoughts you had mm-hmm. going into making a murderer? And, and and the other thing I'm curious about as you sort of go through those initial details and, and thoughts. How? what were you expecting to watch when you turned this on? Because I think one of the that was interesting for me is I actually started watching this on vacation when we were like on the beach in the islands. I guess it had just come out on Netflix because this was like Christmas week and um, we just kind of grabbed it by random. So I didn't really know what I was watching. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of curious what you thought this story was going to be in the beginning um, as we sort of go through some of what happened.
0: Um, I think, uh, I expected the storytelling to be more like serial. I expected some kind of, uh, a running commentary. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised with the, um, the, the way they told the story instead, just, um, in their own words, basically, um, using the interviews of the people who it was happening to and, you know, court documents and court transcripts and court recordings. Um, I kind of expected, uh, my wife watches a show on hln called forensic files and it's a whole bunch of um there's a whole bunch of science to it so you know they say well we use this chemical to do this and we use this to find these fingerprints and i kind of expected more of that um mm-hmm. but they were kind of more glossing over it. it's like well we did a dna test and it didn't match and you know and it's not as as specific i guess it's more general um so that was what i expected um, but I still liked what they did um and you know i i i, I feel like there is uh, uh, that bias to it that you mentioned that um even based on the title that this is what you know this is, they have their their they 've already decided what 's what 's what before they 've filmed this and um and come to their conclusions so the first trial was for um yeah the rape and assault of Penny Bernstein. And uh, she was attacked on a beach. Don't bring up
2: this bear thing again. You Mm -hmm. know, that's a whole... That's another podcast.
0: Bernstein.
2: Actually, it's generally this podcast, but not tonight.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And she was... uh, She took a jog away from her family there at the beach. And she passed someone. And he made some kind of comment to her. And she then made her way back and this person attacked her and dragged her into the woods uh, and attempted I think attempted to rape her or I don't remember if he was successful but either way he ended up um, beating her very severely
1: I think he was unsuccessful
0: Mm -hmm. right because they found uh, the DNA from the finger scrapings not from a a rape kit or anything like that so they, the um, Mantawak Uh, county sheriffs basically decide that they are going to try Stephen avery for this uh even though there is evidence that he could not have done it that he had alibis that he was uh, could not have been at that beach at that time so through a series of events they have a drawing done by um the sheriff he
2: this will come up again Mm -hmm. in case the uh Large side didn't hint any, anything.
0: Uh, draws a picture that sort of looks like a a former mugshot of Stephen Avery. Um they show it to Penny or I'm sorry, they draw it from Penny's description, quote, <laughs> drew it from Penny's description. Um then uh put Stephen in a lineup and Penny picks him out. Uh at the time they could not test the DNA, there was just wasn't the technology. Um, I think they could test maybe blood type or something like that
2: yeah they could test blood type and those did match interestingly but, um, they they did match this time
1: I should we should say mm-hmm. it was the alleles right it wasn't a blood type test
2: uh, I'm mixing up my timeline a little bit but it at the time what little blood evidence they have which is far less um, competent or or has less certainty than than DNA did did supposedly match up. One of the things that will come up later in the story is that that was in fact processed incorrectly.
0: Yeah. So, um, I'm looking at the transcript. There were two, uh, yeah, they found three alleles. Yeah. Two of them matched Stephen Avery and the victims and one that didn't match either of them. So there were, there was DNA from at least one person who was not Stephen Avery, but that was all they could tell. So Stephen, gets convicted based on this evidence. Um, He did have, they had his mugshot because he had, did have some prior uh, problems. He um, actually was convicted of burglary in 1981. And then he was later charged with animal cruelty for setting a cat on fire, which got his probation revoked. So I believe he had to finish that uh, burglary sentence.
2: Yeah. That's what I remember.
0: So, I will ask Well, and that, then there's
2: the earlier arrest, right? What was it, the same week or, you know, within within pretty close proximity, he was also taken into custody for um, supposedly exposing himself and stopping a car
1: in the road in front of yeah, the he, Avery home. Yeah, he ran his cousin off the road and allegedly pulled a gun on her, and she was married to a sheriff's deputy.
2: Yeah, and so that report, I think, was just days before the events of the rape.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, Jason, do you feel that Manowoc County was wrong in pursuing Stephen Avery as a suspect?
2: Well, so there's the key, right? I I don't think that it was out of the question that he could have been involved from the beginning bits of evidence, you know, in that first 24 to 48 hours with some initial information. Um, I think some of the things we've learned subsequently, like the way that the – composite sketch was really based very clearly was based upon his mugshot as opposed to the description and didn't even really look that much like Stephen Avery at the time um, was really problematic but the fact that a man who roughly fit his description uh, in an area that he would have had access to After he had just gone through this violent event, which um, not only did he run her off the road and pull out a gun, but I seem to remember her accusing him of exposing himself, possibly, you know, placing his his device on her hood. Um, It doesn't seem to me out of the question that they would have questioned him or tried to get an alibi for him. I think it's some of the things we're going to learn subsequently that make it clear that although he may have been part of the discussion initially, he also should have been ruled out fairly quickly as, you know, within days. Yeah. So, I mean, if you'd like me to review some of the things, I think I'd be happy to do that.
1: I, I, do, I do have to say that the the mugshots and their appearance were very similar. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, having gone through a trauma or, or whatever, it would be very difficult to tell them apart unless you had a very good memory.
2: Yeah, I um, Penny Bernstein, who... Um, Other than the eye
1: color, obviously.
2: Yeah, so, so Penny, who would, um, I guess, verify the sketch and then choose uh, Stephen Avery out of a lineup. Um, I don't think that it's unusual that she would have picked him, not only looking at the composite sketch and the mugshot and Stephen Avery, but even looking at the person who they ultimately will find out did the crime. Um, I don't think it would be unusual at all for her to pick him out visually, especially after a traumatic event like – I couldn't tell you that if I saw somebody do, you know, in the throes of a crime, and those two people were put in front of me, that I could tell you which one it was. Exactly, they were definitely similar looking. Um, but I mean, here this here's the challenge, right? So, while this is happening, uh, Stevie Avery has a really good alibi, um, like Mike said. So he was miles away with many family members. He's got receipts from uh, some kind of convenience store or something like that that like demonstrate that he was totally out of the area um they were contacted not only during the investigation stage but even during the uh trial stage from folks in an adjacent county or or maybe the city cops within that county that wasn't always totally clear to me um But essentially that there was another guy who fit this description who had done very similar crimes in a similar area and that it was almost definitely this guy. I mean there were literally letters that said like it's definitely this guy from these other folks and they never even talked to him or brought her in. I mean all these kinds of things that happened during the course of the investigation and trial itself that I think make it clear that Stephen Avery had just unfortunate coincidental events surrounding this and the wrong look. That while I think it was not necessarily inappropriate to bring him in, it was clearly inappropriate to charge him and take him
1: to trial. Yeah, I mean, Vogel had knowledge of the guy. He uh, he was told by one of, he was either a secretary or a paralegal, um, that it was probably this guy, Allen. And then Colburn got a call from, you know, county over saying, We've got a guy here who says you have the wrong guy in jail.
2: Yeah, so Colburn is uh, one of the cops the and Vogel is what the DA, I think. The, yeah. The, the DA prosecutor, the,
1: the prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: yeah So they, they had ample reason. I mean, and this is like one of the, the interesting pieces, right? Because we'll get to the lawsuit that occurs later on, but they were clearly, I think negligent, right? Negligent is, the, is the right word and, and potentially criminally. So in their investigation, because they had ample evidence to at least look other places and clearly never did. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I don't find it crazy that he was brought in. I don't find it crazy that he became a suspect early. I don't think it's strange that Penny identified him given the look of the actual man. But all of those things are still not sufficient to bring him to trial or to find him guilty or to ignore the other ample evidence that exonerates him. Like the fact that he has a rock salad alibi, the blood evidence even at the time that I think could only reduce it to, to uh, small chances but still not – Um, minuscule chances that they match, they didn't even match up all the way. So Mm -hmm. you've got that, you've got this other guy who's been accused of kind of lurking the same area of sexual crimes that fit this description, who is like I think he was also recently let out, either on bail or just out of jail anyway They, they knew that this other guy, at least the other police and investigators, was almost definitely responsible because it actually fit his M.O. It didn't fit although Stephen Avery was not exactly a good guy before this point, these events didn't really fit anything that he had done in the past. So it just, it doesn't add up. And that's why I think they settled the case when he is eventually exonerated. And frankly, why I think they would have lost it, that that civil suit to the tune of millions of dollars had Stephen not needed the money immediately.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. Gregory Allen was the the person who actually committed the crime. And uh, the police had been observing him for almost two weeks and just happened to get called away when this crime occurs for like
2: a six hour window too, or mm -hmm. eight hours, right? It was a small period of time. They weren't watching him.
0: Right. And I'm not saying that that was, I'm not, when I say they happened to get called away, I'm saying, you know, I don't think there was anything negligent in that. It was just right. Well, I find it hard
1: to believe that he wouldn't know the cops were watching him. Right. Well, that's the thing, right?
2: It, It was a, they got pulled away for a reason, non nefarious, and he took that
1: opportunity immediately. These are these are not you know the best and brightest cops in no. the country. They're I mean they're not idiots most of them, but they you know they're. <laughs> I don't know how to put that without they're small town cops. Garbage. Listen, yeah. they're small town cops. These are and not at times you know a little bit Keystone ish. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, they they were criminally incompetent during this trial. Yeah. So he
2: gets convicted, right? And he goes to jail for, what, 18 years, I think?
1: Mm -hmm. And maintains Um, his innocence the entire time.
2: That's right. And um, eventually the Wisconsin Innocence Project picks up his case because they find out that there was physical evidence collected that could now be DNA tested with the new information. They do the DNA test. It's clearly not a match. He gets out, and I can't remember the exact timeline, but I believe it was shortly after and as part of the investigation to potentially have a civil suit that it became clear that this Gregory Allen character existed and that they had been contacted and that they really should have known And in fact, I think that he had boasted about this in jail or something like that. But he had made some comments also that implicated him. Um, And when they tested, in fact, the DNA in the system, he lit it right up. It was definitely him. He was the guy. And they had knowledge and should have known. And Avery walks out. Right. He walks out a hero, too. I mean, that's – maybe the the greatest drama in this story comes pretty early in the season where he walks out a hero who is then driving legislative change um in Wisconsin to be more um to defer more again to the innocence that like we brought up earlier of of folks who are being um tried for crimes and there's a big um a big bill going through there there's a bill to compensate victims of wrongful accusations that that in particular is set to provide him with compensation they named a
1: task force after him, the Stephen Avery Task Force.
2: <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, he comes out a hero. He gets news coverage, national news coverage, not just local news coverage about this particular story. He gets on the main page for the Wisconsin Innocence Project. I mean, this is a open and shut case of wrongful conviction, clearly overturned by the evidence, and subsequently found that there was um, law enforcement negligence and and district attorney negligence involved. I mean the Wisconsin um Attorney General's office opens up an investigation on this matter. This was he came out fully vindicated and a hero.
1: And they you know probably the first thing that that keyed me off that this is not going to end well for him is when they when the uh Department of Justice in Wisconsin investigates the DA's office and they do nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean and this guy was he obviously knew he was told repeatedly and he ignored any sort of extra evidence that it might not have been Stephen Avery because it's something that, that comes up again and again. Are, are these prosecutors – is the system focused on finding the truth or is it focused on trying to find a conviction?
2: Well, and worse than do nothing, I, I, I actually want to – I'll take Umbridge. They didn't just do nothing. They had an affirmative finding of a lack of negligence. They didn't find that something went wrong and then put any sort of meaningful punishment or change. They literally said, nope, we did everything the way we were supposed to do it. There was no wrongdoing by our officials in this scenario. Um, The other thing I think that's very funky that you start to see here, and this is one of the benefits, I think, of having so much public material on the case, is we get to see the police and the DA at the time of his release talking about the events of his release and the – thing that was so bizarre is how many of them stuck to the allegedly about his innocence mm-hmm. and actually right? continued to main, <laughs> maintain his guilt or at least potential guilt and refused to acknowledge that he had not taken part in that crime even as the victim herself embraced him.
1: Yeah, the uh, the guy who drew the picture, mm-hmm. Jean Couchet, he, he above all just seemed Unreal. Really, really just – he could not fathom the idea that – Stephen Avery wasn't guilty. Uh, He's got that framed on his wall. He was so proud of that picture he drew. Yeah. I've never seen anyone more proud of a crappy drawing (laughs) than that guy was of of something that was obviously based on a mugshot that they had on file and not on Stephen Avery's current appearance. Right. Well, and his pride does not diminish at
2: all when it becomes blatantly clear that it was – one of the key pieces of evidence that sent the wrongfully accused man to prison for 18 years.
1: <laughs> yeah, he like, just
2: kind of – I don't think he's guilty. <laughs> yeah, like like there was no sorrow. There was no remorse. Um, there was in fact a maintenance of the belief that they had not only done everything right but had gotten their man. It, 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 almost a sense of like Stephen Avery was guilty of this even if he wasn't physically there, even if he never touched her or looked at her, Stephen Avery was guilty. He, his existence is a guilty existence. That was the way that they made me feel. And it, in fact, colors my viewpoint of the next trial, which is why it's so important, is that you see in this sort of interstitial space that it is abundantly clear that everyone involved believes that Stephen Avery's very existence is a, an existence of criminal guilt of something.
0: Yeah, so on October 26th, Uh, Cushy is deposed about, uh, the case for Stephen's lawsuit and they bring up the sketch and he has had that sketch in his office for 20 years. So that includes the two years since Avery got out of jail, was exonerated. And in that deposition, he questions if the DNA evidence is actually correct. Then five days later, Teresa Halbach disappears.
2: So Teresa Halbach is the woman who Stephen Avery will eventually be um, accused of and um, convicted of abducting and then murdering. And she is an auto trader magazine employee. I'm not sure if she was full time or contract or something. But she basically heads out uh, – and this was in, in what, the 2005? Is that about right?
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
2: Um, So this is when, like, you actually still have to put an ad to sell a car, particularly in an area like this that is um, not exactly urbane, um, where you'd put in a classified ad. And so you can get your picture and you'd pay to have an ad to say, hey, I'm selling this truck or I'm selling this car and and here's what it's being paid for. So she would go out and basically look at the vehicles, take pictures to make sure they fit the description and actually existed, and then would produce the ad, I guess, um, based on that description. So... She was known to have something like three or four appointments, um, the last one being with Stephen Avery, who was looking to sell some kind of truck. And she is seen at her prior appointment. She goes to Stephen Avery. Um, That seems to be clear. I think even Stephen says that he saw her that day. Um, I don't remember what his initial story was and if there was inconsistencies there. she, uh, She gave him a magazine. Yeah, that's right. And that's why he had it on his desk. So she goes out to take a picture of his man. And then he says, as far as I know, she went along on her way. Uh, but she hasn't been seen for three or four days. And um, he's the last person who's seen her. So he's out on camera saying, yeah, she came here. I saw her. Uh, hope they find her and all this other stuff. And very quickly, it becomes obvious that he will be the primary suspect in an investigation as the last person to see Teresa Hallbach in any kind of confirmed way alive.
0: Right, so she goes missing, and I'm gonna step through kind of the events that, as we understand them, um, the w- the discovery of this evidence. So first off, they shut down the compound, the Avery compound, and begin to search it. And this is on I'm trying to find the date. Well, she was reporting missing on eleven three, which is. About three or four days after she went, actually was last heard from.
2: Well, hold on. Before they shut it down, didn't they find the car
0: first? Um, no, they didn't. Oh, interesting. Okay. Colburn investigates two locations. First, he goes to the Avery residence, and it doesn't say where, where else he went. But um, so Andrew Colburn is called into this case, and the Andrew Colburn who um, had received a call about. Gregory Allen possibly being the person who committed the crime um, against Penny in uh, Steven's previous case for some reason he is the responding officer who goes to check out uh, or to catch up with uh, Stephen Avery uh, in, since he was supposedly the last person to actually see Teresa
2: which you know let's think about the idea that not only is it the same police department, but we're now 20 some odd years later, and it's the exact same officers who were involved in his first case. All of these names from the first case, these folks have not only still been on the force, most of them have been promoted, and it's going to be all the same officers who get involved in this case again.
1: Yeah, That struck me as weird too, but then I started thinking, like, this is probably a, a small operation. You know, they had the You know, they had the police, the jail and whatever else in the same building. And it was not a very large building. So I have to wonder how many like deputies and officers they actually have employed in the office. Yeah, I've got a –
2: I've got a – I picture like a police department that's got maybe 50 officers of whom like 30 are traffic cops. So there are only so many that are actually investigatory police. Mm -hmm. So one of the big pieces of sort of um, evidence or events – is the fact that Teresa's car is missing, not just her. So she's driving a '99 Toyota Rav4, and they're really, while they would love to find Teresa, I think their their focus has been on finding the car in a lot of sense. Find you know find the car, find the girl, basically, um, and. One of the things that's important to know about the Avery, uh, I guess we're going to use the word compound, why not? But they own uh, many acres of land, some of which is like salvage yard and various garages. And it's clear that they do um, work around salvage, fixing cars, um, metal work, things like that. And so they've got actually on the land that they own what a, a lot that looks like it's got, you know. Several hundred junked cars in various states, including a compactor and all that stuff. So it's basically a junkyard. It's a salvage yard and a junkyard that they live on. Um, so it's not an obvious place to look for a car of a missing person especially someone who's seen there, to, to kind of want to go through those vehicles.
1: Uh, I mean, this, There's probably no better place to dump a vehicle where it just gets lost in the stacks.
2: And that's right, yeah. They're in the middle of – no one's near them, right? Like if you do a scan out of this area, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's just you're on a, a country highway and then all of a sudden you see – um, some trailers and mobile homes and some traditional um homes that are you know detached homes and a junkyard and salvage yard and other uh buildings behind you know like you see all over uh more rural United states right this is where they live in the and most of the family lives in these homes out in the front and they work uh the land behind them mm-hmm. so it's it it is like the it is where you would ditch a, a car right it 's like there are hundreds of cars. They're never going to find it. They're all junked. Many of them it, get compacted. This is like, where you dump, dump a car.
1: It's the it's the rural version of uh, dumping a car in the airport parking lot. Right. It, exactly.
0: And according to something I'm reading, their scrapyard was 40 acres and had more than 3,800 cars.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, this is just a, a huge area of land that is primarily empty um, and then has... This large industrial area that is just stacked with cars uh you know i'm trying to picture like the, the zoom out of the cars i mean there's like a quarry on the property, but like we're talking eight, nine, ten rows at least of cars that go back with a few hundred cars probably in each mm-hmm. to get to that thirty five
0: hundred it's huge so and then if we look at the Averys themselves to me they're kind of a group of people who Struggle with uh, emotional intelligence, I guess. In that, it's pretty easy for them to get themselves in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, they they they're very reactionary. They they strong tempers. Don't, mm-hmm, don't exactly think things through before they do them.
2: I mean, I'll come out and say all the mean stuff we want, right? Like, in a lot of ways, if you picture the stereotypical sort of um, more rural. White trash kind of family, right? Very, very blue collar, not very intelligent. Family is very close knit and separated out from everyone else. It, it kind of reminds you of like the stereotypes of gypsies, let's say, you know, like all these things that I think, you know, for me, especially like growing up in the Northeast, they're not really even stereotypes that feel modern to me. But that that is sort of this family. Like if, if it were a hundred years ago, they'd be the moonshiners, right? Nowadays, they are the people you think are probably cooking out meth in the back. Like these, this right. is the image of these yeah. people, right? Like these are the rural meth heads. These are the people who get themselves in trouble, who are – you know have the kid who's lighting gasoline tennis balls out back. Um, well,
1: and it's like you said earlier. They were – they are the other. And right. in, in that community, they are not only just sort of socially um, apart from everyone else, but they're physically apart from everyone else. They have a lot of land they're obviously doing okay, you know, um, because they're, they have clothing and they have, you know, like they're making a living. Um, they're very tight knit. They all live, you know, together on this property. And I, I get the feeling that they're not very tolerant of any outsiders, either just, just by, uh, being suspicious or, uh, being burned in the past, or, you know, they, they're living by a, different sort of set of cultural rules than the rest of, of the county or town or whatever it is.
2: Another way to think of it is like they are what Duck Dynasty is pretending to be, <laughs> right? I mean, honestly, like, like the, the Duck Dynasty is like a bunch of rich, rich guys who didn't even have beards before the show started. And they're like, they're pretending to show a vision of a particular culture. And they, they are the art imitating the Avery life, the non-glamorous actuality of being rural and poor. Although their compact compound and business and all that stuff was valued at some point in the show. They they mentioned like it was worth millions potentially.
1: Yeah, um, I, I think what, um his dad, you know, I think he was doing pretty well.
2: Yeah. Especially I mean, for the area. And and the reality is for them doing well meant We have enough land that nobody has to come bother us unless they're going to give us money to do something. We do what we think is honest, hard work, and get the hell out. And we have the money to do that, and our family can do that, and if you're not in, you can get the hell out.
1: Should we bring up the fact that Stephen Avery has an IQ of 70?
2: It is revealed as part of the details of the first trial that he is not the sharpest tool in the shed. I remember for sure his nephew who will come up has an IQ of 69 or 70. But Stephen Avery's
1: was not much higher than that. Uh. Yeah, they said 70, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, his first public defender. The, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, the, another thing maybe I should just say is there are very few likable people in this entire series. Um, from the defendants to the prosecution, There are it's just I, I did not like almost anyone that they interviewed except for a few of his defense attorneys. The first one being Risa Evans. She was (laughs) very earnest and um, she really seemed to care about Stephen getting a raw deal and justice and wanting to make sure that things were right and to get to the truth. And I think um, the few people who exist in this series that believe in that were the only likable people.
2: Yeah, this is not. You're not going to relate to Stephen Avery or his family, not the plight that they go through, not the lies that they lead. They're not glamorous. Uh, they're not enviable. They're not. Um, they're not fighting for, for some greater cause that you're going to get behind. You don't see yourself in many of these people, and you wouldn't want to. Um, and that's 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 the folks who we're supposed to be rooting for. On the other side, on, on the cops and the district attorneys and and to some extent some of the defense attorneys, which we'll get to, um, not all but some, these folks instead are deplorable in a lot of senses and are everything that you're hoping people in those kinds of positions are not. They are vindictive. They are uh, – they take things very personally in their work. They are not interested in protecting um Anyone except for people who they directly relate to or are in their circle of influence and friends. They are um,
1: not seeking truth, most importantly, and, and, and not
2: interested in the truth.
1: And above that, they, they carry an inordinately high amount of hubris and power, um,
2: which I don't think are disconnected.
0: No. What about Stephen Avery's mom and dad? Did you find
1: them likable? I felt very sorry for his mom. I felt she, a lot of sympathy. Yeah, She's really just, you know, like her, her family's being torn apart. And um, her son in jail twice. And her, her grandson in jail. And, you know, it's, it's a giant nightmare. It's everything you would hope would not go wrong in your life. And I feel terrible for her.
2: Yeah, they they I think are very sympathetic characters in a sense, and I think we talked about this where we said you know the dad who owns all this stuff is probably doing pretty well. You get the sense of um, something I think we all fear, particularly if we if we reach personal success, which is that like this is going to be the peak, and future generations of my family can only be a dilution of the success and happiness and experience we have. And I would say that I think that Stephen Avery's parents before all this started probably felt like they had done better than anyone would have thought. And they were living the lives they wanted to live. They had their business, they had land, they had family and they loved each other. And then they're brought through all these harrowing events. um, And, and subsequently, finally, not only is their son um, proven to be innocent, but he is now famous and a hero. He is everything that they, the one thing that they were never going to be, were sort of beacons in the community right these like we talked about how isolated they were and yet their son someone who i think they probably felt was pretty unassuming and not going much further than what could be accomplished on the successes that they had as parents and would always be somewhat dependent upon them which wasn't necessarily something that was bad but but this is their son that's going to sort of make make a mark he's going to be um A symbol and he's going to have meaning and he is going to, if not be welcome in a certain type of polite company, he will be known and appreciated and respected for the ordeal that he went through. And then that gets torn away from them and an even more horrific crime is pinned upon him and the evidence builds up again and the outsiders again are coming to get them and what little success they were able to carve out for themselves in the world and they are clearly in deep pain throughout this entire thing. Um, And they're just trying to protect their family, protect their son that they want to believe when he says he's innocent. They certainly believed him the first time and that was definitively shown to be correct. And everything that happens around them is just tearing them away from being able to – and they're – elderly would be too strong a word. But they're they're reaching the point in time in their life when they're supposed to be able to enjoy their success and enjoy their family and enjoy – the world they've been able to build for themselves and they get none, no enjoyment or pleasure out of any of these things.
0: I think the most heartbreaking part for me, uh, was towards the end when they go back into one of those big buildings and Steven's dad has, Oh God. Built yeah. a, a fish farm, um, <gasps> for his son so that his son has, you know, basically has a future and it's all interrupted by this, trial by the these events he he's trying to provide something for his son who's gone through this horrible thing um uh, some some normalcy and uh, it never comes to fruition yeah and yeah. then it's
1: just there like like some kind of torturous reminder you know like he left it all the way that when he built it that was, oh, it was heartbreaking you're absolutely right yeah. It's the ghost of the world that was supposed to happen,
0: right?
2: Mm-hmm. And it's it's you know something. The one thing I can probably most relate to. I said they're unrelatable, but actually, this is an area I can relate to. Where you know, particularly, I think with small businesses and family businesses, if one generation is super successful, but it's clear that that's not really the thing. Whether it's a passion or an, an ability thing, that that that's not going to be the business that the their children is going to, are going to take on. It's not going to be able to provide. And it's him clearly saying, I'm going to take the money and the time to invest in whatever it is you want to do and you think you could be good at so that you have a living, you have a future. That's the whole point of me building all this stuff. Now that I'm secure, I need to secure your future. And it was ripped away.
0: Well, she's reported missing on the 3rd. And she's reported missing to Calumet County, who calls Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department To uh, get some assistance. Well, they send Andrew Colburn out to the Avery residence to interview Stephen Avery. But oddly, for some reason, James Link, who was uh, another one of the officers who had some potential evidence for Stephen's innocence in the 85 case, calls Calumet County and offers to provide assistance. What's not clear is how he knew about this case in the first place. So two days later, um, there, there, the search parties are formed by, um, Ryan Hilgus and, uh, Scott Blodorn, who are Teresa's ex-boyfriend and her roommate. Um, and they start doing searches. Uh, two days later, they return to the salvage yard and the search party asked for permission to come in and search for the car and Pamela Stern and her daughter, uh, Pamela is a second cousin to Teresa. After 20 minutes of searching, find the RAV4. Then approximately 200 officers are sent out to start searching the property. Um, they search the garage, they search the bedroom, they search the nightstand. Um, but, one hour after the rav is discovered, um, a detective calls uh, the Manitowoc County dispatch to see if it, they have arrested Stephen Avery yet. So when now, did, um go, go ahead.
1: Sometime around here is when Colburn calls in the license plate, right? Right. Uh, actually, on
0: the third, uh, Colburn calls uh, dispatch. This, so this is the third. This is. The day that he's interviewed Stephen Avery.
2: And prior to the car actually being found.
0: Correct. Calls dispatch to ask about the phone or about a license plate number and gives them the license plate number. They say back to him, that's Teresa's car. And he says a 99 Toyota, which is information he maybe shouldn't have yet. If he's calling about the license plate, why doesn't he have the rest of the information about her car. So that's very fishy. Um, on the 6th. So this is the day after they start searching the property. The 200 officers are sent to search the property. And basically shut it down. Brian or Brendan Dassey is interviewed for the first time. On the 8th. This is three days after the first search. Uh, Colburn searches Stephen Avery's bedroom again. And finds no, no new evidence. However, James Link searches the bedroom and finds the key to the RAV4. Um,
1: let's, let's also say that at several points here, um, because this is becoming a big story, the investigating um, officers you know, the, from Kelman County are making a huge deal about how Manitowoc County is not involved in this investigation of the Avery property. They have several press conferences where they're making a really big deal about how no one from the sheriff's department is involved except to provide some kind of uh, logistical assistance.
2: And the lawsuit at this time that Stephen Avery has for his wrongful conviction, which is valued in the millions, is ongoing. It has not been settled. It has not gone to trial quite yet. It is, you know, really just
1: getting underway. I think that's important to the timeline. So the next day, uh,
0: Stephen Avery is arrested and he is questioned by Fassbender and Weigert who are special investigators assigned to the case. Um, st- the idea being that they are not, were not involved with Stephen Avery before. I believe they're from Calumet County. Um, either way, they're not a part of the Manitowoc police department.
1: I think Fastbender was from the Department of Justice in Wisconsin.
0: So November 10th, they find uh, human remains, uh, burned human remains, on Stephen's property in a burn pit. So this is the 10th, which is five days after the 200 officer search and about 10 days after she was last seen. So now we have the key. Uh, well, actually, let's back up. Now we have the car found, found by, not by a police officer, but by a relative of Teresa and found very quickly out of 38,000 or 3,800 cars. And she found it in 20 minutes. And for some reason, the hood has been changed and it's hastily buried under uh, some plywood and some branches. Um, Not really very well hidden. Um, And when they finally open it up, they find Steve and Avery's blood on the inside. Anybody have thoughts on
1: the car? I have lots of thoughts on the car. (laughs) Um, I think it's, you know, if you're looking, like we said earlier, if you're looking to dump a car, I mean, there's no better place. Um, I think some things factor into maybe some other third parties that should have been considered as suspects. Um, that were, you know, either live on the property or um, work there. And I think um, there's also a possibility that what actually happened with Colburn is he um, had himself a little illegal search of the property and called in the license plate, and then he told the family members where to look for the car. Mm.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's very likely. Um, one of the interesting facts they talked about is that morning the search party was specifically directed to go take another look at the Avery complex. So it was not necessarily – like every day they were basically saying, where should we go look for the car again. And the cops specifically said that day, go there. Um, plus you have the Coburn calling with the make and model and, the, um, and all that kind of information earlier in the week. Uh, the fact that out of all the cars, she is directly targets this particular location and the bizarre state that the car is in, right? Like none of the other cars are covered by branches or plywood of any kind, um, like anything else in the lot. And, and frankly, it's incredibly silly to imagine that anyone would think that that conceals the vehicle because one, if you look around, it's the only one that looks like that. So if anything, it draws attention. But two, and this fact I think was stated multiple times, like – there's a car compactor on the property. If you want to get rid of a car there, there are much better, easier ways to do it that certainly anyone who, who worked there, like Stephen, who had operated it before, could have used. So it was very much a case of sort of – it. not only was the car in the best place to put a car if you were anyone in the area looking to ditch one and not have it be found, but the way that it was put away, it was it was more than hidden in plain sight. It was an eyesore sticking out like a sore thumb.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I will say about the compactor, uh, that the problem with trying to use a compactor is you have to remove most of the fluids from a vehicle. For for example, the gasoline and the, the, uh, oil and basically everything has to come out. And so compacting a car isn't that easy. Um, and as a matter of fact, like the engine block is, uh, you know, made of, uh, dense metal and so it can't be compacted
1: well and you know he pro- it, if if it was him you know maybe he was going to strip it for parts <laughs> like i don't i don't know like he he doesn't seem like a criminal mastermind to me you know no. so if he did do it and the car is there like he's doing something stupid this is a guy who knows how to
2: strip a car absolutely I mean, you know like this is like, it is it is practically the family business. is a chop shop, in a sense. So mm-hmm. it is kind of bizarre for the thing to be sitting, uh, whole, right in position, uh, w- within the first, you know, hundred and fifty feet, maybe, of the whole area. Like this is not back tucked in the corner either, necessarily. It's not quite the first car you look at, but it's not tucked all that far away. There's some interesting stuff about where the car is. Um, I doubt we're going to have time to get into it, but like there are folks who I think would have been clearly the subject of investigation in, a, in an appropriately done investigation who are given access to this site as part of the search party. That does not make any sense. Um, there's just a lot of mistreatment. But it, it ends up being probably the one of the most important pieces of evidence in the case that will ultimately – convicts Stephen Avery of Teresa Hallbach's murder, which is that the car is found, the car has blood inside. The blood that's tested does match Stephen Avery, and we'll talk about some of the details there. Um, and it's what leads them to shut down all of the Avery property for, what, the next eight days? Nobody's allowed in or out but the cops. And the, uh, the police say that no one from Manitowoc County is going to be allowed on the property to do the search, um, but when we get to the next bits of evidence, we will see that that was not the case.
0: Sheesh. That's Putting it lightly. One thing that was brought up was the car crusher that was nearby mm-hmm. to the car, and uh, my understanding is that you can't just crush a car, that you need to remove most of the fluids. Is that your understanding?
4: Um. Well, I... I haven't seen a, uh an actual car crusher in operation. Uh I think that's probably more a regulatory thing as opposed to uh you know worrying about damaging equipment or something. Mhm. So it if we're talking about somebody who's brutally murdered somebody, I don't think they're going to have any hang-ups about crushing a car.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh my the only thing I can think of that you would have to remove would be the gasoline. Um uh, I mean, there's, I don't think there's really
4: even all that much of a fire hazard in a car crusher. Um, just the, just the other day I watched a guy in a, um, in a crane with a claw um, crush a Suburban with a big steel block, flip it over and then rip out the gas tank without draining anything.
0: Hmm. So. Okay. So do you have any thoughts on the car? Uh
4: I I didn't see the the start of the series so I am a little confused about um later on when they when they're talking to one of the deputies uh about the the license plate situation he he called into the dispatcher and verified the the plate number mhm uh I was con- confused about why it was relevant if uh or for him to be uh making that call when looking at the vehicle
1: because he wasn't supposed to be looking at the vehicle at that point
4: so it was was that supposed to be at the at the start of the search
2: it was two days prior to the vehicle being found so it ah. was like on the third or something and i think the vehicle was not found till maybe the fifth or sixth mm-hmm. okay yeah that
4: that definitely makes more
1: sense
0: yeah
4: yeah um Were
0: the
1: plates on the vehicle when it was found
0: i don't think so they found them strewn yeah, through the yard or something
4: the front plate is not on it in the in this picture and uh front plates are required in wisconsin
0: thank goodness we have a, <laughs> a uh, wisconsin uh motor vehicle right? plate ex- expert
4: that's right well i i know this because uh my brother-in-law lives in eau claire and uh most of the car scene out there uh will run without a front plate because they don't like the the way the car looks with a a front license plate on it, and they figure it's just worth paying the fine every now and then.
0: Hmm. I can't find anything about the plates right now. But I I seem to remember reading somewhere that they were not on the car.
2: Uh, Definitely the front one wasn't. I can't remember about the rear one, but they did find the plates. They were recovered. So they were not on the car. They were on the property.
1: Yeah, because what I recall is when... They played the tape of um, the lady who found it calling it in to dispatch, and she was transferred to someone, and she had to read off the VIN number. Hmm. So, I mean, if you have to read off the VIN number, it's because the plates aren't there, right?
4: Uh, not necessarily. I mean, the plates are easy enough to swap.
1: Well, I, but, I mean, coincidence of the same make, model, and the plates, I'm, yeah. that's, enough, that's enough to get everyone out there, at least.
4: Yeah. You know, so, it, unless you think the the judge is going to want more for a warrant or something, but I kind of doubt that in this case.
1: No, but I mean, you're called a dispatch because <laughs> you found the plates. And if you found right. the plates, everyone would be out there in a hot second. Yeah. yeah. So, but, so the fact that she had to read off the VIN number says to me that the plates weren't there.
0: Sure. So, yeah, on uh, – what's her name? Uh, oh, Pamela Sturm. She calls uh, – to report that she's found this car, she says, uh, or the, the dispatcher, he says, is there is there any license plates on it? She says, there's no plates on it, but it's a little covered up. Uh, the dispatcher says, okay, can you get to the front of the car? And Sturm says, yeah, I will. I can find a VIN number. He said, okay, if I go in the car? And the man says, no, <laughs> do not go <laughs> in the car. Which I don't know how she thought she was going to go in the car, because my understanding it was locked. but So apparently there were no plates on
1: it at the time okay but colbert called in the plates so
0: Mm -hmm.
2: weird
1: it is very weird
2: i i think this goes to uh to nick's kind of theory which is that i think it seems very likely that coburn may have done an illegal search of the property first because one of the pieces of information that came out was not only that the the woman doing who found the car kind of basically beelined for it but the search party was directed to check that that property on that day, specifically by the cops. Like the cops said, you should go check the Avery compound again and look for the car. So whether the car was moved, um, that's a, a second level of conspiracy potentially. But it does seem to me very likely that not only was Coburn looking at the vehicle, but he, if it was on the Avery property, he had basically decided to perform his own little search there. And that's how the car was ultimately recovered rather than it being sort of a smart random search of an area where, you know, and this is something we were talking about earlier. If you were going to dump a car anywhere in that town, that's where you're
0: dumping that car. Because mm-hmm. there are 3,500 other junked up cars. But if he... So, he say he does his, his illegal search, finds the car, he's reading
1: plates from the car that doesn't have any plates. Well, if they were strewn about, maybe he found one of the plates first and then that got him looking further. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of uh, either... Steve or maybe it was his, was his brother, Chuck, said they saw some headlights or taillights down there.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on to the key, which was found in Stephen's bedroom after five, six, seven, eight searches and found by Detective Link of the uh, Manitou County Sheriff's Office, not uh, a Calumet County uh, officer.
1: Well, the, yeah, but one of them was present, who was not watching them at the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
4: Yeah, uh, they found it while he was out of the room, right? I'm not or, sure if he was... He was, he was, was at, at least looking at looking the other direction or something.
1: was writing a report or something, maybe.
4: Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And uh, they find, from, from what the uh, show said, they found Stephen's DNA but did not find any of Teresa's DNA
1: on those keys. Or any other DNA.
4: Right, yeah, I I was going to say, I recall it being no other DNA on the key.
1: And the funky thing is, they find this
2: key in his bedroom after they had searched it, what, three times, and no one else identified it, and then the Manitowoc... Folks get into his home, a place that they were supposedly not going to be permitted to enter, and they find this new piece of evidence that finally and it, links.
3: And mm-hmm. it's
2: Colburn and Link. Right. It's it's the two guys who are most involved in the previous crime that we keep bringing up with all these other crazy things that they're doing. And they find this key, and it's the only thing at this point in time that – definitively links an Avery to the vehicle, other than the vehicle being on their property, which is admittedly a junkyard and chop shop for 3,500 cars already.
4: Yeah. Uh, what was the What was the year of the RAV4? 99. Oops. I can spell today. <clears throat>
1: yeah, that guy Link. I just, uh, something about him. Not sitting right with me.
2: I think he's totally evil.
1: <laughs> Him and F- Fassbender looks like a, a James Bond villain.
4: <laughs> I'm just, I'm just looking up to see if uh, uh, 99 Rav4 even uses a transponder key. So I I hadn't thought about that before. Um, because like the uh, our work van, uh, the the key that I use for it has a has a chip in it um but our the van itself doesn't actually have that system it it just is a a key out of a, another vehicle in a junkyard that happened to be the same <laughs> Let's
0: see here. doesn't oh, seem sure. come on doesn't seem like it has a chip
4: yeah it looks like uh, they started using them in 2006 so i mean it, it's possible that's even you know just from another toyota
0: well, it had her keychain thing on it too, though. Oh, right, right. Okay. So it was. I think we can confirm it was definitely her her sure. key that she had when she yep. came on the property.
1: But no, none of her DNA. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's insane. <laughs> it just fell off.
2: Well, it's like how how much do you have to handle a key to get your DNA on it and remove somebody else's DNA who owned the car and operated every day? Like that just doesn't seem like something that happens through some kind of natural process.
1: And Mm. like look at Steve Avery's house and room. Like you go within five feet of that place and you've got Steve Avery's DNA on you. Mm -hmm. So to
2: give you guys a picture, since we're uh, currently um, in the theater of the mind – it would not be too far stretched to say that Stephen Avery was well on his way to an episode of Hoarders. Mm-hmm.
4: Although, did, uh, did we have any pictures of it before it was searched? Because maybe he had a whole bunch of really awful crap in neat piles.
0: Yeah, we had the <laughs> those those first officers who came through uh, who were videotaping who okay. uh, had already
1: convicted him. Mm. Yeah, they were making uh, nice little fun comments about how much they love Steve Avery. Uh, no bias.
4: No, no, of course not. Well, it's, I mean, like the—I'm um, probably jumping ahead a little here—but the uh, closing statements from the the prosecutor might be. Yeah, the well, it it kind of ties in the whole. Uh, a reasonable doubt is for an innocent person. Mm, okay, not really sure that's how this actually works.
0: <sighs> no one like, is likable. Yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to find the uh, that part where they're going through the house videotaping. I'm not having any luck. Uh, I can't remember the exact phrase she said. she like looks at it, some kind of invitation, and says, "Well, he's not going to make it to that or something like that."
2: Yeah, I think that may have been Innocence Project event or something like that. Um, yeah, but yeah. So so they find these keys. That's pretty messed up. There's this blood in the car, and I think we should probably insert sort of information from future stuff about the evidence as we talk about it so the blood found in the car there's some question as to whether or not well first of all it's only Stephen Avery's blood it's not Teresa Halbach's blood anywhere in the car there are some
4: I I thought the blood in the cargo area uh, was supposedly hers yeah
2: Yeah. right but I think that the blood itself was still his not hers but I, I mean I could be remembering that wrong Um, And so there's a question, right? So how does Stephen Avery's blood get in this car? One of the most damning things that happens throughout this case is that we find out that the blood that was taken for Stephen Avery's exoneration that is now in the evidence of the previous uh, trial for Penny Bernstein's uh, assault and rape, not only has the seal been broken on his blood, um, just in sort of like the styrofoam – Uh, case that the vial itself is held in, but the vial itself has a clear, clear um, hole on the top in the rubber stopper that looks like the same hole you'd get from a reasonably large gauge needle being pressed Mm -hmm. through to extract some blood. So the chain of evidence on his blood is clearly broken, Um, and in the possession of none other than Manitoba County, who are the folks who are doing this processing. So I think that For me, um, putting aside the fact that like we talked about the unfairness of their treatment and the presumption of innocence and that these guys were um, even skeptical of Stephen Avery's innocence after he was exonerated from the first crime and all this other stuff. The one piece of evidence that I think makes this whole thing sound the most conspiratorial is that blood Mm -hmm. where that vial was clearly contaminated at some point and accessed in a way that was not appropriate. The, at the trial, they will argue – they they actually have – the FBI brings back a test that they had stopped doing because they didn't feel it was valid that would search for um, EDTA, which is a common additive uh, and a buffer. So this chemical additive, EDTA, you can find it in a lot of liquids actually that you consume. It basically makes sure that – Uh, The blood won't clot and it won't um, solidify, so it keeps it as liquid form. And so the argument was if we could test for the presence of EDTA in the blood, then it clearly could not have come from the vial because when you take a blood sample like that, they add EDTA to make sure it doesn't um, clot or coagulate in any way. So they said that there was no EDTA in the sample, but the tests were – Not only non standard and not typically used, um, the defense had a very convincing analytical chemist. And I should probably reveal at this point that my background and training, uh, you know, I I studied organic chemistry in college, um, came on board and basically said that the best thing that this test can do is say that we don't know if there is EDTA in the sample, that we have not found evidence of EDTA in the blood in the car. But the lack of evidence is not evidence of, of. something not being there, um, as most people know through stupid sayings and argumentation. But but the reality is like the chemistry test can only basically say, was there enough EDTA in this sample that it is blatantly obvious there's EDTA, and there's no real evidence that the test that they were using had appropriate levels of sensitivity to detect EDTA the presence that you would expect, um, and all these other things. So. Essentially, the blood ends up looking like it could not possibly have been planted from the perspective of the jury uh, until you see this other witness who basically says, it, through technical terminology that may not be as convincing, the FBI is full of shit on mm. this particular piece of evidence. It'll, so,
1: And a lot of the – I mean the other blood that was found, there was a lot of suspicions around how that was handled too. yeah. Uh, the,
2: this whole so, thing was not done well, and if you're looking for a conspiracy about this and the belief that he was entirely actively set up, the blood is the place to start.
1: Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think they, oh, there's, there's so much suspicion and just things that don't make sense, things that don't add up, people doing what they would never normally do in the daily course of their jobs, that it, it should be enough at least for a mistrial, you know? I, I just mm-hmm. – I don't – I don't understand how the judge allowed so much of this to go, go through. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, you, setting aside uh,
4: any conspiracy, the uh, the person from the FBI lab that th- did the test just seems incompetent. Uh, talking about how uh, he could state with uh, what do you say, scientific certitude, that the uh, that the third sample that he didn't test also did not contain EDTA
2: right it It, it was, was total insanity, and of yeah. course, my other background is in statistics, right, so <laughs> I'm sitting here watching this thing as a not an analytical chemist per se, but someone familiar with the the tests that they're doing, and, and like i could have I could basically tell you what tests they probably did, and I've run those machines, and now what I do for a living is
1: analyze data, listening to this was just mind blowing well, I mean just even like logical rational mind would not say. Oh, I'm convinced that this thing that I've never looked at is something, you know, like, how would you not even question its existence?
2: It's like the classic thing where he's just trying to make the prosecutors as happy as possible, because that's clearly his job as a witness to the prosecution, as opposed Mm -hmm. to actually playing the role of an objective expert.
1: Hmm. So bad. So the the uh, blood in the. So, yeah, they found her blood in the back in the cargo.
0: Did they mention that in the series? I don't remember them saying. Yeah, I, they they I were, were talking, talking about how hands.
1: it could only be caused by um, hair. Mm-hmm. The way that the blood was smeared. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the only way
4: it could have gotten there is uh, from blood-soaked hair being dragged across the, the trim and the, the cargo area.
1: Well,
0: let's move on to them finding the bones on the, the property. And there's uh, that night... I believe the night she went missing, the Averys had a bonfire, um, and the police department is claiming that is when those body parts were burned.
2: Another kind of sign about the type of people that we're talking about here with the Averys is the fact that it was you know, very typical for them to just start burning rubber tires in their <laughs> front yard. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> so this was. This, at no point did anyone express any sort of like strangeness at nine o'clock on like a Thursday or something like that. They would just start burning tires up in the front yard.
1: Let's have a bonfire! Woo! Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean that. That's what's going on here. So let's um, get the
1: golf cart and pick up a bunch of trash. <laughs> and then you just cruise around the front lawn and, oh, there's a cabinet and here's a seat and here's a bunch of tires. And,
2: and this is what they found, right? All those things are in the um, in the bonfire, They're including like, the bones of Teresa Hallback.
1: Like real mm-hmm. life Heathcliff.
2: <laughs> um, there's some evidence that's brought to light later that the bones may in fact have been moved from a secondary site in a quarry on the property. I'm not sure that that ends up being all that consequential. Um, but – Teresa Hallback's body was clearly on this property and clearly disposed of in some way uh, in this fire or in a fire because the bones are burned and it's in the fire pit where these uh, fire took place. And it's discovered on the property, I think, during that initial eight days.
1: Is that correct? Um, I, I, that was one of the first things they found. Right? Didn't they find that before the key? Uh, I think that's what caused them to shut down the whole property. Let me see.
0: Oh, that caused them to shut down the property was the RAV, finding the car. Uh, Bones were... I'm trying to recall if this was actually from
2: Brendan's testimony a few months later, that they ended up going back and checking the fire pit, or whether or not they found it during that initial search. Either time that they may have found it, does anyone have anything else to say about sort of the presence of the bones on the property as part of this bonfire?
1: Well, according to this timeline um, I found on Reddit, so, you know, (laughs) Who knows? Um, They find the car on the 5th. They find the bone fragments in the burn pit on the 8th. He's arrested on the 9th. And then they find the key on the 10th. So there you go. There you have it. Um, So the the burn pit was the thing that that really just sealed it for them. Right. Well, and
2: and you would think in a murder case, case, finding the body is probably up there with finding the weapon as the most important um, turning points in an investigation. Mm -hmm. so Stephen avery is brought into custody he's clearly the prime suspect at this point he's charged um i believe and we've got the key we've got the rav we've got bones on the property he's the last person to have seen her he's maintaining his innocence no surprise and doesn't really understand what's happening assumes that it is a conspiracy again. He decides to settle his lawsuit with the Manitowoc County for four hundred thousand dollars, which he will be applying to his defense fund, so that he will not have to use a public defender like he did in his first case. And he gets two very competent attorneys to take his case. And I, I would say, if there's one bit of light, I mean, we talked about the, like who exactly is sympathetic, and we talked about his parents as sympathetic, but um, sort of if anyone's going to take on, I think, the mantle of her- her- heroism in this case. It would probably be these two attorneys who um, will are recommended by Stephen Avery's civil attorneys who actually were also quite good as well. Yeah, you
1: no, know, his civil attorneys were – I mean they really did a lot of work.
2: Yeah. So his civil attorneys who we're going to sort of I guess forget about on this because it, we're not really talking about the civil case. They, they seem to be quite good and they put him in touch with these two um, attorneys for his actual defense who – I think do a pretty credible and very competent job and are clearly on their client's side from day one and trying to get him both a fair trial and understanding the mistreatment that he's had and, and put up a heck of a defense. So I, I, think, I think that that's they were very good. Thinking. Very, yeah. very good. This is I think again one of the most depressing parts of this story is, is he had excellent attorneys this time around. And you see that both in terms of their direct interviews with documentarians, but more importantly, you see this in the courtroom where I think they do a very good job of working to acquit their client.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of cases are, are made and broken by the judge. Um, and that was, that was something that was very disheartening for me to learn when I was, I was thinking about going to law school, um, And this case certainly had a lot of points where the judge made a huge difference in evidence and jury instructions and whatnot that made the case against Avery much more difficult to defend.
2: Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in Manitowoc County, both the district attorney and the judges are elected. Is that true? Because that that being the case potentially, and we'll get to – Len at some point, who oh, yeah. might might be the most evil person in this conversation, but I'm pretty sure that he lost the case to be um, DA in his county. So I'm pretty sure that both judges and prosecutors for the county are elected positions. And assuming that being the case, which I, I can hear somebody's Googling for me right now, yeah. um, that's a whole angle that we may want to get to at, at some point, which is the political nature of these positions in certain parts of the United States and whether that is an appropriate thing or not. Because some places you elect judges and other places they're appointed. And some places Mm -hmm. you elect district attorneys and other places they are hired as part of the administrative executive branch of uh, enforcement. So I think that's an interesting thing to the extent to which being political impacts or does not impact this case.
0: Yeah, so the trial starts... Um, and it's the end of, no, it's, uh, mid January, uh, when Stephen Avery pleads not guilty, uh, or pleads innocent. Then in about one month later, uh, Weigert and Fassbender start interviewing Brendan Dassey. And finally on, uh, t- about 10 days later on March 1st, they get him on videotape admitting, that he and Steven um, committed this crime.
2: And this is seen as a huge break in the case, right? I mean, they do a huge press conference where they describe the brutality of the events as told to them by Brendan Dassey and how much has come to light and assert that physical evidence on the scene has confirmed the story that Brendan Dassey has told. Um, this piece in particular, I think, is something that was always unclear to me as to what exactly they're referring to. I think it's the next thing on our list to talk about. But... Um, Brendan Dassey, who also has an IQ of approximately 70, like his uncle Stephen Avery, is uh, a key figure in sort of filling in the supposed events, both from a narrative perspective but also from a um, motive perspective. Because at this point in time, it doesn't really seem clear. Stephen Avery has got a million-dollar lawsuit coming through. He is just released a couple of years ago. He's got a fiance. This is a random woman who's coming to his house. Why the heck? Would he even do this? Which continues to be a question in my mind, which is never really resolved. But Brendan Dassey is the one who starts to create a story that at least can be told to a jury and might begin to make sense and becomes really critical to how the police construct their understanding.
1: Real-time follow-up. They are, in fact, elected, the judges. So
0: how do you feel about Brendan's confession? (laughs) yeah i i
4: I mean unless there's some videotape of uh something else with him holding today's newspaper and you know whatever (sighs) uh confessing uh that he he and steve did it without any of these awful awful law enforcement officers there Uh, uh, i mean seriously I I've seen the the tapes and it's ridiculous. It, the videos it,
2: are uncomfortable. They're yeah, really it's horrible. Uncomfortable.
4: It it's like um, Lenny from of Mice and Men, uh, uh, being in the beginning of my cousin Vinny. Yep. It's mm.
1: no, I completely agree. It is he's a minor and there's no lawyer. I mean, no no parents. Come on, and.
2: and-, and- You know, the classic thing, and I admit I'm getting this a bit from television, but like the classic thing you're not supposed to do because it contaminates your witness's testimony or or the confession in this case is introducing new information that they could not possibly have access to and then using their statement to confirm it. And over and over again, the police suggest, is this what happened over and over again? Did you rape her? Did you stab her? Did you this? They they basically introduce the story that he ends up telling back to them in many ways, and it yeah, is the key part of, of which.
1: Yeah the the key part of which was um, uh, him saying that he shot her in the head, or Steve shot her in the head. That was the one thing they were looking for because they they wanted the cause of death, and he just came right out and say it. He shot her in the head, didn't he? Yeah. What else did he do to her head? <laughs> I mean, it it was like – it's like in – I don't know which book it was, but uh, Song of Ice and Fire. You know, they got the the tickler, the guy who's torturing people with the rats. You know, like, where's the gold in the village? It it was horrible. I I felt so bad for him.
2: Yeah. I mean, so the shot in the head is basically the thing that they know at that point in time that would sort of verify that his statements are not totally made up. And they introduce it. They introduce it. And it's just – Unreal, and the bullet in the head ends up being the piece of physical evidence that I believe they're referring to. Um, when they ultimately find evidence to quote unquote corroborate the story, they go into this garage which is just packed to the gills with, shit. and <laughs> I mean like an unreal amount, and they find like a single bullet that has a bit of Teresa Hall Black's, uh blood on it.
0: Well, they uh, they found a piece of a bullet. That's right. And nope, 11, no holes. 11 shell casings.
2: Sorry, actually, I remember correctly. There were whole bullet holes and shell casings all over the freaking place, just like there were guns all over the place.
0: Yeah, it it's
4: a garage in Wisconsin. What do you expect to find?
0: <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and uh, the other thing, they find the bullet fragment after the whole reason they go back to search again is because of what brendan has told them using air quotes to search this garage yet again and this is uh almost three months later that they find a bullet fragment and 11 empty shell casings in a garage that they've already searched multiple times
2: right continuing this Mm -hmm. trend of of finding brand new exculpatory evidence After 16 searches or whatever, you know, some—that's an exaggeration, obviously—but after many searches failed to turn up anything whatsoever, finding a single piece of evidence that, in isolation, makes essentially no sense, right? Like the the chain of evidence there makes no sense. The key doesn't make any sense how it could get there. It doesn't make any sense that his DNA is on it and Teresa's DNA is not on it, and that they wouldn't have seen it. After the three previous times. The bullet, it's the same thing. Why is there one fragment of one bullet in this location with a little bit of blood in the middle of all this crap without a single bit of evidence that you could not – no one could ever possibly believe, looking at this garage, that you could shoot somebody in that garage and not get blood everywhere and ever clean it to any kind of level of satisfaction. You would find blood, and they never find any blood except for on that bullet.
0: Shot her supposedly five times with a rifle, and yet- in the head range <laughs> and no no blood found anywhere except on a bullet fragment
1: and that was before they hauled him in on the and publicly broadcast everywhere that uh they raped her and slit her throat and stabbed her, and then cut her up and burned her, mm-hmm. but there was no blood in the bedroom, there's no evidence of anything mm-hmm. happening in there, and so then they the- had. They had so many different stories, so many different narratives about how this even happened. And then they coerced some sort of story out of this poor kid without a lawyer or a guardian present. And somehow all of this just flies through the trial with no problem. Right. And Mm
0: -hmm. all all this is happening after he's already been arraigned. He's already entered his not guilty plea. And uh, uh, over a month later they're finding this new evidence. So they've already, you know, they already believe he's guilty without this evidence. And now they just happen to find more.
1: I mean, they dug out the cracks Mm -hmm. in the garage and they found nothing. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, that's the thing. Uh, from what I understand, it's not that they didn't find anything. They found Steven's DNA, but they didn't find any of Teresa's. So it wasn't even like he could have scrubbed it somehow Mm -hmm to get right. rid of her dna because his dna was still there
4: well obviously uh, what he did was he completely cleaned out the garage uh scrubbed it down with chemicals to destroy anything and then backfilled it with dirt and his own dna and the shell casings that would incriminate himself
0: yeah and, and, crap, and put happened, all just,
4: yeah just
2: yeah
1: it makes no sense yeah. It just makes no sense. Crap that looked like it hadn't been moved in five to ten years. Mm-hmm. And <laughs>
2: right. He he dropped like a uh, you know a twenty five pound bag of dust and just like sp- yeah, strewn it all about. Why not? We got sacks of dust on this place.
0: Mm-hmm. And that that crime scene was not locked down. No, people could go yeah. up, come. I mean, the, all the other Averys could come and go as they pleased. Yep. Joni was living there. Yep. So how? You know, it's not a pristine scene at all. No,
2: there's no reason to believe that the cu- the chain of evidence there could possibly be preserved. It's months yeah. later. Months later, after the Manitowoc cops had crawled all over this place, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah,
4: and I mean that that extends to the uh, finding the bones in the in the fire pit too. You know, basically people just going out out there with spades and shoveling loads of stuff into buckets and then coming back, dumping it out onto a sifting table.
1: Yeah, they didn't even make a grid. Yeah. yeah.
4: they
2: You know, Indiana Jones style instead of doing it for real. Right. And I guess yeah, I let's... did – go ahead. Hmm?
4: Oh, I was going to say, let's just get the the Boy Scouts down here to help us dig all this stuff up.
2: Yeah, no kidding. A lot of amateur hour stuff here. And I kind yeah. of poo pooed the idea that the, the bones and the secondary site, but now that we're talking about it again, it is worth noting that Um, Some evidence was presented to basically say that the bones were probably moved there and may have come from a secondary site um, in a quarry where there was other evidence of a fire and Mm -hmm. that there was I think also bone uh, evidence there as well. And what's so fascinating about that if you think about it is if the theory is that they've got this 40-acre property and anyone could have accessed it and why wouldn't you dump the truck there after doing this stuff? And then the theory is, well, you could burn the body – on this other site that's far more remote in terms of its positioning on the property. It's not where everybody lives. And then dump it in the existing fire pit that exists where they've got you know tires going up in flames. And who knows how high the fire pit was. That's actually another interesting inconsistencies that comes up later in the story. But mm-hmm. the idea that you could move the bones from an area that is conspicuously out of the way. To one that is directly in the way, and a fire that is directly connected to the evening of the disappearance of Teresa Hallback is again suspicious under a certain set of circumstances and stories. And, and part the, expert, the reason
1: mm-hmm. the expert testimony in the trial, um, you know, for either side was conflicting. One said yes, they were burned there, and the other one said no. There's no way I can say for certainty that they were burned there. So, That's right. There's lots of, of expert testimony on every piece of evidence that is completely at odds.
2: And, and this is the thing to bring up, right? I, for all of these stories where I say, if you're looking for the conspiracy theory, if you're looking for the alternative here, the reason why I bring it up is because that is the burden of proof that our system is supposed to place. Can you tell a plausible story with the evidence that does not lead to the guilt of the person on trial and the plausibility of so many of these stories, even adding them up all together, where there is no inconsistency with the rest of the evidence is easily sufficiently high to just one by one knock away the things that say Stephen Avery is guilty. Um, I... I don't know as strongly as maybe some other people that I land down and say that he's definitely innocent. I think I'm more in a place like I was after Serial, which is to say that he should never have not only been convicted, but probably never should have been brought to trial because of the amount of BS surrounding the case. Uh, And and I'm very firm in that belief, more so than his supposed innocence. And this is the thing that is just unreal is that – Over and over again, it is clear how the evidence could tell a very different story, and yet there was a jury out there, probably a big piece of this is the judge, like we talked about in the jury instructions there. But there is a jury out there that convicted him, and no set of appeal ultimately is successful to bring this case back to a courtroom. Yet we're faced with these easily explained by other means bits of evidence, easily. I mean this is – I'm not a freaking detective. It's not – This isn't complicated to figure out how things could have gone differently in this case whatsoever.
1: I'm just thankful they don't have the death penalty. Yeah. Or if they do, it wasn't sought because um, it's kind of the worst case scenario. So now that Brendan has confessed to this and uh,
0: he realizes he's not going to get to go home and watch WrestleMania. um, (laughs) Now he uh, is on trial. I mean, this is Wisconsin. mm -hmm. What are you
2: expecting? Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) Cheese.
0: He now gets himself an attorney uh, assigned to him. (laughs) uh, Jerry Lundergaard. Lynn Kaczynski.
2: (laughs) Also known as Evil William H. Macy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I
4: I still can't believe he actually set set up a Twitter account. Uh, (sighs) Just not good at critical thinking.
1: Really? I mean, he's like the most incompetent the most incompetent person I've ever seen committed to film, like doing their job so poorly. Like Mm -hmm. it is amazing, amazing how incompetent of, of a defender he was.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And they, uh, they moved to dismiss him once and were denied. Right. Yep. Yeah.
1: Again, the judge. Yeah. Lynn
0: Kaczynski. Were we done talking about him?
4: Uh, Well, I, what else is there to say? He's just awful.
0: Mm-hmm. And for some reason, sends his investigator to get yet another confession out of Brendan Dassey, which I don't understand. They already had mm-hmm. a confession. What, what, how many, how many times are they going to get a confession and why is his own lawyer sending someone to get a confession from him?
4: Yeah. Uh, it, it, it seems pretty obvious to me that, uh, Kaczynski thought he was guilty. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think he was just trying to to work on getting a um, plea bargain.
0: So, but they knew this was, I mean, they recorded it on purpose. I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't understand how, how did they think it was going to look? What, in what world does, does it seem like that was ever a good idea?
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Having an investigator say, look, just tell me you did it and things will be okay to somebody with that low an iq i mean there there's not there aren't going to be that many different outcomes for this
0: do you have anything else about Kaczynski? K- K- kachinsky
1: well i already said i thought he was the most incompetent person ever right
0: right that pretty much that goes bears completely. repeating
1: <laughs> i mean like a presumption of guilt or innocence you know maybe as as a defender you have some kind of bias or idea but you know your your job is to um is to defend this person no matter what i mean that's your job you at some point chose to do this for a living and he he did the opposite of what he was ethically and um everything that he was supposed to do he did the opposite of and i think he's I don't know. I, I don't know where he is now, but I, you know, maybe he should be disbarred even because it was just it was such a gross representation of what he should be doing when he was almost working for the prosecution. Mm-hmm. And they show him coming out of a meeting with
0: um, the, the the investigator. What was his name? Um, Fassbender. He comes out of this meeting yeah. with Fassbender, and immediately uh, O'Kelly. His investigator goes and gets this, another, this new confession.
1: Yeah, I think Fastbender yeah. is evil.
0: Yeah. Uh, apparently, the
4: Sisson and Kaczynski law office has uh, one and a half stars on Yelp.
0: <laughs> I saw that, and uh, you cannot can, you cannot review it currently. Yeah. Weird. But th- this guy has been practicing law since this happened, mm-hmm. and none of his clients probably have any clue well they probably do now now they do yeah yeah so let's talk about some of the other actors in this um we have ryan hillegas who was teresa's ex-boyfriend they dated since high school um apparently never considered as a suspect yeah he was Weird. he the one that
4: um that brendan's brother saw like they they were passing on a road or something that was supposed no, that, to
1: hmm? um what? <laughs> are, the, the, are you talking about his his later stepdad?
4: Mm? Mm-hmm. Uh, I might have the the uh relationship mixed up, but uh there was somebody who um testified, last name Dassey. Uh looked like he was maybe early twenties.
1: Oh Bobby. Bobby Dassey, his brother Yeah, Bobby, right Brendan's brother.
4: hmm Yeah, so wasn't um he'll guess the the one like they they uh based the timeline on when Bobby passed somebody else uh you know going opposite directions on the road in front of Avery's house.
1: Yeah, that was his um later stepfather, right? What was his name? Uh Teditch yes. Oh, okay, okay. The guy with the mustache.
4: Okay. <laughs> Yeah, that one guy, right? Okay.
1: <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I think yeah. he married their mom, right?
0: Yeah, They're, he was step their stepdad. All right. So he, he, it's okay. He was uh, never really considered as a sp- suspect, and was actually in charge of the search parties. Uh, which, you know, I've seen that happen where someone close to the to a victim or a suppose possible victim organize the search but they've generally already been ruled out as a suspect on some sort of alibi or some other grounds um you know that you you can't have s- someone who was possibly involved leading the search parties that doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense
1: Well I think that's very common what what's very common you know anyone who's close is leading a search party whether they're guilty or not hmm. the, you know you pull the old dick Cheney maneuver
4: Go shoot him in the face.
1: (laughs) Well, there is that. No, I mean, you know, you establish a search party and you can't find anyone better than yourself.
4: Yeah. Okay. There we
0: go. Um, so I believe he and Teresa's roommate, Scott Blodorn, accessed the voicemails at one point. And according to the singular engineer, that... Someone had to have deleted some e- some some voicemails for um, Teresa's voicemails to start accepting voicemails again. So there is some suspicion that someone deleted some of her voicemails.
1: It was him and her brother, right? Um,
0: it, I can't remember exactly, but it seems like it's different occasions that Hillgas Guess guessed her password, and in a different occurrence, her brother checked it or something off to search
1: the way i recall is that they <clears throat> sort of figured it out together hmm. but her brother does not come off um looking very well throughout this either again with the motif of no one is likable yeah <laughs> uh,
4: um are you, are you talking about uh does not come off well uh in in uh reference to him possibly being guilty or just being a douchebag?
1: Just being a complete douchebag.
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Ugh. Insufferable. Well, yeah, it, all, the, all the interviews with him where he's talking about, well, yeah, see, they, they presented this evidence, so that's just one more reason he's guilty.
1: Right, or I don't know why they all chose to lie like that on the stand. Yeah. What? <laughs> Everyone else is crazy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so here is Mike Halbach talking about the email or the voicemails. My mom called me on November 3rd that Teresa, I'm paraphrasing, uh, tried calling Teresa and her inbox was full. I had a feeling I might know her voicemail password. So, you know, I that's why I did call her voicemail. Um, I can't, I don't see where the boyfriend was there at the time.
1: Yeah, it was her brother. Yeah. He Ew. Yeah,
0: so the the brother accessed the voicemails through the voicemail system, and I and Hilligas accessed it through accessed her wire, singular wires account through the website. Okay. Oh, through the website even. Yeah. It is... doesn't sound like you can listen to voicemails through that, but he was um, in her account, able to see what calls she had made and so forth.
1: Yeah, probably not at the mm. time.
0: I don't remember.
4: I I was a singular customer, and I I seem to remember that. But I or being able to listen to your voicemails, but now I I can't recall.
0: Right. So there's some potentially some emails mm. that got deleted at some point that we mm. don't know. You know, we don't know for sure that the engineer was correct. We don't know. You know, we don't know what happened. There's not really any way to know for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, it it definitely
1: seems like Something had to have been deleted That was what the evidence showed
0: Right. So then we have uh, Scott uh, Tadich Who we talked about before Who is Brendan's stepdad And appears to not like Stephen Avery At all
1: (laughs) Well, that's (laughs) a common thing
0: Yeah Uh, He kind of acts like An outsider to the Avery clan I mean, he almost like better than them, I guess to me, uh, how long ago
4: did, or I guess how long before the, um, this all happened? Did he marry Brendan's mom?
1: I thought he married her after, but maybe,
4: well, I mean, either way, it's, I don't know that that Uh, necessarily really means anything
1: at the
0: time of the murder. He was dating. Yeah, they are now married. Yeah. So anyway, he just doesn't seem like he fits in with with the rest of the
4: Averys. Well, maybe he just would. doesn't like the yeah. Maybe he doesn't like the smell of tiger fumes.
1: <laughs> tire fumes. I mean, tire fumes and sadness.
4: Yeah there there are any numbers uh, of explanations for that.
0: Uh, and it also turns out that Tadich has his own record, um, some very. A very uh, bad record, too. Yeah, some violent crimes. Um, mm-hmm. Threatening and uh, just generally not uh, not uh, very kind. Um, punching uh, girlfriends and wives and threatening mm-hmm. to kill people and punching the husbands of women he was interested in. <sighs> uh, knocking on a woman's window at 3 a.m., and he
1: reportedly tried to sell a twenty-two rifle? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I don't know if we want to get into like theories of what may have happened, but um Tadich and, and Bobby Dassey are my my prime my prime suspects. Let's talk about some of the things that have come up since uh it was
0: published. So supposedly they have found they found DNA under the hood of the car. Uh I I haven't been able to Anywhere that that's actually confirmed. And, uh, Steve and Avery's lawyers say you can't get DNA from that. And, um, so I don't know how much weight that actually carries. I mean, if that were to mm. be true, would that change how you feel about Steven's, uh, innocence or guilt?
1: I feel like that's just going to be the same story as every other piece of evidence. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. it's circumstantial at best. If the evidence should even be allowed, I don't know. Like, it, it it doesn't make any sense. For one, like, just like, why does he do that? It seems like a guy like him is trying his best to stay out of harm's way. I just don't understand.
0: And the next thing is that since this has come out that uh, Jody is pro- portrayed as, uh, you know, the the doting girlfriend who can't wait for him to, to get out so that they can have their lives together. Mm-hmm. But she's come out on some interviews um, as saying that she was actually very scared of Stephen and tried to get away from him, um, that Stephen threatened her from jail and said she needed to keep her story in line or else bad things were going to happen to her.
1: Any thoughts on if that mm. is true? or? I don't believe anyone. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like the the, the amount of waffling and flip flopping in testimony and from both sides, you know, it's not just the witnesses, it's the cops and mm-hmm. and everyone. The only one who maintains a consistent story is Steve Avery. And even then, it's like, I don't know how much I believe any of it, but the evidence is weird.
0: Well, some evidence that has been confirmed is that. Stephen requested Teresa and he called her phone three times and two times. He concealed his number. Right. Which is also weird. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but doesn't help us.
1: Um, and anything. then reportedly she wanted to qu- She wanted to quit her job and uh, her boss or whatever convinced her to go out there.
3: Mm hmm.
0: Which doesn't make any sense. No. Why? Why would it be so important that it was her?
1: Nothing makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, to think that, like, Brendan Dassey and Steve Avery are capable of cleaning a crime scene or setting up, like, some sort of way to shoot someone with a rifle at short range and not get blood everywhere and not leave anything behind is Mm mind-boggling. It doesn't, like, fit with my view of the universe yeah the definitely
4: the uh the story that the uh prosecution put together makes absolutely no sense i i don't see any way that it it went down the way that they say that that it did
1: and they pretty much convicted the two of them on different stories Mm -hmm. which also is insane because if brendan's trial had come before steve avery's there's no way yeah let's wrap it up with the
0: with some final questions here Nick, do you think Steve and Avery killed Teresa?
1: I hope not. (laughs) I, I, but, you know, I don't think so. But I'm not, like, 100% sure of anything. Harold? Uh, based
4: on what I've seen, I don't think so. But, uh, the vast majority of what I've seen is also, uh, produced by people who don't think he did it. Mm -hmm. Um. and it, it's just too hard to say. But like, like I said, I, I don't think there's any way that it happened like the prosecution say it did.
0: So was Brendan Dassey involved or was it all fed to him? And he, he actually has no knowledge of what happened.
1: I, I, who knows? I mean, I, you try to get like inside his head and it's like, you ever watch 30 Rock?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's an episode where you like see things from Kenneth's point of view and like everybody's <laughs> a Muppet. Mm-hmm. I just think um, that he has no idea what's going on. He had no idea when he was brought in and when he gave this story or, you know, just agreed with what the cops were saying that he, he was going to go home. Like it. I don't understand how he could even stand trial hmm nothing you said was consistent, and certainly there was no evidence they didn't find his stuff anywhere mm-hmm.
0: Well, I realized I forgot to give my answer of if I think <laughs> Stephen Avery did kill teresa and i I do feel like he was involved in some way i i did uh even just the proximity that he had to everything that happened. I feel like he was at least aware or or something uh, but at the same time, I just feel like somehow he was involved. Uh, Brendan Dassey, uh, I don't think he knew anything. I, I feel like even, I don't think he was there. If he saw anything, there's no way he, like, if he saw just random pieces of evidence, I don't think he would be able to put it together that that's what, what had happened. You know, it was like, Hey, that photographer's car is here. He probably wouldn't even put it together. Mm-hmm. So Nick should Stephen Avery have been convicted. Absolutely not. Harold? Absolutely not. Uh, yeah, and I agree. Now, did law enforcement frame him? Were there malicious actions by, the, by law enforcement to uh,
1: implicate him in this? I believe so, yes. I think it starts with an illegal search of the property, and I think uh, Link planted the key. I'm unsure about the blood. Um, And I also think that uh, something that that Jason was saying earlier, that due process and, you know, presumption of innocence just was never a part of this case. And from the very beginning, the prosecution and the state started a a story about, you know, slitting throats and rape and all of this stuff that had no physical evidence. And it's just a total miscarriage of, of justice. Uh, being that
4: I I don't know if he killed her, I, I can't tell if they framed him for it or not. But um, at the very least, there was uh, severe incompetence uh, involved. Um, and I, I have to think there are at least a few people who kind of fudged some stuff. Um, Leng's testimony sure points to him having uh, – having possibly faked some evidence, uh, planted some evidence. Um, but like everything else, who knows? <laughs> but it, I sh- I sure don't want to be pulled over anywhere near Manitowoc County anytime soon.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't feel like he should have been convicted. And even though I think he was involved in some way, I still feel like that the law enforcement did what they had to do to get a conviction, whether mm-hmm. they had evidence that she had died there. And so we need to plan it on somebody. We might as well plan it on Stephen Avery since, you know, he's suing the pants off of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, he's made us made a, a mockery of us, basically. I feel like they did uh, do what they had to do to, to get a conviction of him. Even though maybe it was someone else on that property,
4: hmm yeah, and i I got the distinct and feel uh, distinct feeling that um, even though he was exonerated on the on the prior rape, that uh, a lot of people involved figured, well, he was convicted, so he did it,-hmm, which i I think is not as uncommon as it should be.: <sighs> It's a very unfortunate
1: situation all around.
4: Yeah. And uh, as I was saying in Slack earlier, it uh, definitely seemed very Wisconsin to me.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, one of the first things they they teach you when you're in like pre-law or thinking about going to law school is never talk to the police without a lawyer. And it doesn't matter if you're a witness or, you know, you just you do what you're told and that's it. So it should be a lesson to everyone. Mm hmm. Never, ever talk to the police without a lawyer. All right. They will get you one.
0: (laughs) Well, hopefully they get you a good one.
1: Yeah, and not Jerry Lindergaard. I'm
0: pretty sure Lynn has some openings right now. Thanks for listening to this special episode of This Will Never Air. Note that most of our episodes are not this depressing or are at least depressing in a different way. Show notes for this episode can be found at thiswillneverair.com slash 32. Did you know you can also leave comments below the show notes? Also, iTunes ratings and reviews are timestamped, so they make a great alibi. On this episode, we're Jason at Jason Becker on Twitter, Nick at Wonder Harold at Princess Harold, and I am Mike Biesterfeld at Mike Biesterfeld, and follow the show at Never Air Podcast.